0: Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 50 of Inside Quizzing. A
1: podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love
0: the Bible. And in this episode 50, our half-century podcast, I guess if you would call it that, or no, it's not bicentennial, it's like half-centennial, what's the word for that? Duocentennial. Duocentennial. Awesome. So, in our duocentennial episode, we are going to spend a fair bit of time going over some marked questions that came out from. The quiz meet that was in Madras, we're going to be talking through some of the uh, sort of the some very interesting questions, actually, in terms of like their implications in terms of rules and phrasing and quality and so forth. We're also going to be doing a Hebrews 10 chapter in review and then uh, following up on some of the stuff that we were going to do in last week's or a couple weeks ago podcast. We're going to be talking about energy conservation strategies and attitude stabilization strategies and why those two things are incredibly important at quiz meets at all levels. Uh, So with that being said, we'll kind of dive into it. But the very first thing I wanted to do before we get into some of these uh, pretty cool marked question discussions and debates. I wanted to make a quick announcement about what's going on in p So just last week, I think it was Thursday, so maybe what, like four days ago, I had the uh, distinct privilege and honor of flying down to Kelso to meet with some uh, potential quizzers and parents from East Hills Alliance Church in Kelso, and the meeting went really well. And we, I, so the quizzers down there are very cool very excited about uh, quizzing and had a lot of uh, really intelligent questions. And the coaches, too, or sorry, the parents had a lot of really important uh, intelligent questions. And it was exciting to meet with these folks. And it hasn't been 100% decided, but I'd say it's probably a 99% certainty at this point that Kelso is going to be fielding at least one and possibly two teams at our next meet. Up at North Seattle Alliance Church in very early January. So it's very exciting to see uh, a church uh, joining in or or the growth of the p and W district as it were in terms of church and a uh, number of churches being involved. Kelso, uh, quite a number of years ago, was involved in P&W quizzing. Uh, I forget how long it was. I want to say it was probably close to 20 years ago or, or at least 15, but probably closer to 20 years ago they were involved in P&W quizzing. And uh, I'm not sure exactly when they stopped participating, but it was probably somewhere around 15 plus years ago. And then, so it was, it's just really great to see them come back. And I'm excited about the excitement uh, at
1: that church level. So it's really cool. That's awesome. Um, I'm trying to waste a small amount of time while I pull up our historical meet hosts. Oh, I don't have data back that far. Um, I don't think it was 20 years, but it might be 15 or so since Kelso quizzed. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So it's great to see him back. All right. Well, Scott, you've got some marked questions for us
0: to go through. Do you want to kind of kick it through?
1: Yes. So first one is from Hebrews 10.8. The question is, nor were you pleased with what? The answer is them. Um, which needs clarification to sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings. And this was initially labeled an interrogative question, but I think it's a multiple answer, and I think it's useful to talk about because some people may think that um, this is a clarification of a single answer, which would which is specifically called out as not making something a multiple answer. But in this case, the them is already a plural plural word, and you are just clarifying that plural pronoun. Um, to its more specific sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings. And so this is definitely not um, a clarification of a single answer. This is a clarification of an already plural pronoun. So this is a multiple answer.
0: So here's a question for you. If the clarification was out of context and the answer was simply them, now, of course, you wouldn't write it because it wouldn't be a particularly good question, uh, but it would technically be legal. So the word them is plural, Uh, But the clarification is out of context, therefore you cannot ask for the clarification. Would you still mark it as a multiple answer, even though it is a singular word? So
1: I don't think you can write it as a multiple answer in that case. And you could definitely argue that writing it as an interrogative would be tricky or misleading. Um, But... There are many cases where the answer is a plural, a single plural word like the crowds, and that's going to be an interrogative all day long. But this is obviously a more complicated situation where it is a plural pronoun. The clarification is multiple, but we can't ask for that clarification because it's out of context. So I don't think it is in any way valid as a multiple answer in that situation, um, and I would hesitate to write it as an interrogative.
0: Well, don't don't you see the conflict then? So like, if it can't be a multiple answer, if the clarification is out of context, how can it be a multiple, multiple answer if the clarification is in
1: context? Because the clarification is now part of the answer. Hmm. Okay. So disciples is a single answer, but like mentioning by name more than one of the disciples is a multiple answer. Okay. Yeah, I can buy that. I can buy that because this is all hinging on the quizzing, um, artificial, um, five versus construct, um, context definition, you know? Right.
0: Well, and then this is also another great example of why perhaps we should do away with the multiple answer question type entirely.
1: Yes. I think, I don't, I don't think it's super helpful to have multiple answers versus interrogative questions. I can see in a world where we are requiring the quizzers to provide the question on a reference question, I can see lots of problems with not specifying single versus multiple answer on a reference question where a question needs to be provided. Um, that's the one hangup that I have. Other than that, I think the implementation could be pretty seamless with really no, no detriment to anyone and only a benefit in clarity of question writing and asking and all that jazz.
0: Yeah, true. It would be harder. Would there really be a detriment though? It would just make, it would just make reference questions a little bit slower to jump on, wouldn't it?
1: Um, it could. And I hesitate to mention this because you're going to get very giddy about this possibility, but (laughs) split Split reference multiple answers in a world where there's not multiple answer designation are almost impossible or kind of weird. So yeah, I agree. Well, I think they're weird. I I think they're weird regardless. But yeah, sure. I think there's some implementation difficulty around reference multiple answers if you want to get rid of the multiple answer designation because those often test non-contiguous material, which maybe you want. I mean, maybe we want to write questions without any non-contiguous material, though, then we're probably not asking for pronoun clarifications, but...
0: Yeah, probably. It does make things a little bit hard. I'm I'm okay with non non-contig- non contiguous material in terms of clarification as long as the clarification is within context. That doesn't really bother me so much as like these split multiple answer things, which I know are perfectly legal, but they just feel so awkward to me. Um, you know, the idea of of you know if you're reading through something and somebody says clarify he, then it's like okay, I can I can think about it. I can take a step back. I'm not just quoting anymore. I'm actually, it's sort of like, what's your question, right? I, I quote a verse. What's your question? Okay. Now I pause. I think where, where was I? Okay, great. Here's a, here's a formulation, similar thing with, with clarification. But prior to that, the, the, you know, having a quizzer be able to just quote freely, uh, with of course the one little asterisk of make sure you don't say anything that is, you know, can can be considered to be an incorrect answer. Uh, The quote, I just like, I like the idea of encouraging uh, quoting as a way to answer questions.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, the goal of quizzing is to get kids to memorize, to incentivize them to memorize as much as possible. And we do that through a competition format. And when you're going to compete on something, there's kind of a need to make it as objective as possible, which is why um, even though the most important thing is the meaning of the material, most often, um, quizzing like rulings and questions are defined by the verbatim text of the material. So it's not ignoring the meaning, but it's just the definitions are based on the verbatim text. And split multiple answer reference questions are perhaps the most, the purest form of that, right? We're putting on all blinders of meaning and context and just verbatim asking a reference question based off of often a single word, right? And testing the quizzer on whether they can identify it um, accurately.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess I would take the opposite view, um, more along the lines of like a split requires more interpretation than just quoting, right? You have to kind of know what are what are the two parts that you're looking for, um, and and so you know as a quizzer, it, it's just a lot, whole lot easier to just quote the verse, right?
1: Um, I can see what you're saying, but. You could also argue that it requires less interpretation because you're just having to get the words. True. Um, true. And as a reference quizzer, it, you know it has to be something that occurs elsewhere. Um, and I mean, there's your there's your clue, and you don't you don't have to interpret anything about the meaning. You just have to wade through the words and find the right words that fulfill the definition of a reference question. All right. Cool. Well, what's next? What's next? Let's see here. Hebrews nine twenty two. Uh, I was not smart. These these um, screenshots don't include the the type, but this looks like an interrogative. What be cleansed with blood? Um, and the answer is nearly everything. Um, now, one quizmaster marked this um, with the with the quick message because their quizmastering contains an error. And I responded, "What's the error? So can you find the error, Griffin, or any idea about it?"
0: Well, so I know that contains an error is actually the default message when you mark a question. So basically oh, whoever the you. quiz master was just basically clicked mark uh, the question and then just hit okay and didn't actually edit the thing. So it's just sort of a, he, he, whoever it is, uh, marked it. And, uh, for, for some reason that we don't know if I was going to guess, so looking at this question, it's clearly an interrogative. It's clearly valid, uh, from my perspective, I just don't like it. It's it's really an awkward question, you know, like just what will be cleansed with blood? Nearly everything, and as I, I see, I just did it right there. I added the word will. Will is not there. What be cleansed with blood is just sort of like I don't know. It just seems like a very awkward question. Um, so, but yeah, I think it's. Per, I, I don't think there's an error.
1: I just think it's awkward. Gotcha. I had forgotten that that was the canned message that CBQZ will insert there, and so I was racking my brains, trying to find the error when, when it's likely the quizmaster is just like, I don't like this. So perhaps not something terribly interesting to talk about. So let's move on to this next one, which I think is kind of fascinating. And, um, I go back to the word construct a lot because when I write questions, I like to, or make rulings or decide a question is invalid. I like to think about, is there a common construct that I can kind of apply this elsewhere? And I think this one is going to have one of those. So from Hebrews 7.16, we had the interrogative, on the basis of what? With the answer being the power of an indestructible life. Um, let's hmm. see. This is Hebrews 7.16. 7, 16. So um, first, when I saw this, I was like, oh, well, I mean, the verse says the basis of the power of an indestructible life. There's no problem here. Um, basis is a global, global unique word. But then I was like, oh, wait. Um, the basis of a, like, appears twice in this verse. Oh, wait, the first one says, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry. So I believe, now you may not like this question, but I believe in past years a question like what basis or the basis of what has been written as a multiple answer because you could have positive and negative answers where one is not on the basis of a regulation as to ancestry as to his ancestry, and then the other answer is on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Well, in this new world where those have been defined as invalid, um, you can't write this as a multiple answer. And I think that if you have a positive and a negative that you can't write as a multiple answer, then you cannot write the positive as a one answer interrogative. Even though the quizzer can assume that the other one can't apply, that that is not a basis for determining whether a question is valid. Yes, so
0: I, I completely agree. So I don't like the question for the reasons that you've already stated. Um, I, I it it wants to be a multiple answer, but it can't be because of the not rule. Uh, therefore, it's an interrogative. But I think based on the a strict reading of the rule book, uh, on the basis of has to be key, uh, and it's not. It, it takes you to two different answers. Now, granted, they're within the same verse, but it takes you to two different places, two different answers. And if you, and here's the thing, if you supply the not answer, uh, the the first answer, uh, not on the basis of regulation uh, as to his ancestry, you should be counted incorrect, uh, even if you continue on. Uh, And so to me, like that, that just classically demonstrates like this is an invalid question.
1: Yep, and I think there might be clear, more clear situations where there's a positive and a negative answer, and you can't write. The positive as a one answer interrogative, something like she is not short and hungry or she is hungry and not short. Well, you can't say she is what hungry and then write that as an interrogative, um, even though it is probably very easily figured out, um, very easily figured out is not a basis for a question validity.
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And so this is one of those things where I, I'm I'm I know you're not a fan. I'm also not a fan of the the not being able to write you know, positive, negative, multiple answer questions, because this, this would be a perfect example of that. Uh, you write on the basis of what it's a multiple answer question. It's very straightforward. I don't like the fact that it's a split up multiple answer, but again, that's just me being Griffin. Um, and you know, I, I, I totally accept the validity of doing that, uh, writing it that way. Uh, but in the way the rule book is right now, we, we can't write questions like this.
1: Agreed. Let's move on. Ah, Hebrew six three interrogative who permitting? With the answer being God. What are your thoughts? Well, so okay. To be fair to whoever it was that marked this
0: question, they wrote that it was awkward. They did not say that it was invalid. They just said it was awkward. So I'm going to start with the validity. It's a perfectly valid question in all respects. So permitting is a, a unique word, globally unique. Who permitting? God god is a who uh this just seems like a like a super i don't know it seems super valid to me um in terms of awkward um maybe it's a judgment call but i don't think so
1: i mean i don't know do you find it awkward um i think it is awkward and it's probably a rare construct because um permitting is is there a name for is that a gerund an ing form of a verb yeah it's a gerund um You know, like, who running, who asking, who uh, testifying, like, those are all feel, like, the same amount of awkward, but, like, who asked, who permitted, um, who testified, those are not awkward. Or even, like, who testifies, who permits, right? And so it's almost like, um, who, without um, a form of the verb to be, like, is, plus a gerund, feels awkward. And to me, it feels awkward. I would probably keep it in the set, um, but... I do think it, it feels awkward. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it, it requires interpretation of a gerund, uh, versus a, you know, a a verb in the past tense. So I dunno, to me just going strictly on the words, uh, interrogative unique word just seems super straightforward. Like, uh, to me, I, I don't find it awkward at all, but I can understand, you know, we don't usually say interrogative gerund, uh, in terms of questions.
1: Yeah, but I wouldn't, like, you know, go up to you and ask while you're recording this podcast and go, who podcasting, you know? Well, sure, sure.
0: You would say something like,
1: who is podcasting or something. Right, or who podcasts or who, yeah, exactly. And so I think that's kind of where it comes from that we never say this, this form in English, like, ever. (laughs) Well, sure.
0: But that being said, if that's the case, there are many, if that's the, if if, if, if that's the, you know, awkward standard, there are many, many questions that we never actually say that uh, we, you know, in common speech, uh, but are technically legally
1: valid. Sure. So maybe we need to take, take more note of those or, I mean, I, I mean, I, you're right, that something like inexpressible and glorious joy, we wouldn't say, like, what joy. We'd say something like, what kind of joy? So I think there are many places where we would use more words to go with a single interrogative word in common English. But in this case, there aren't other words that we would normally attach to this interrogative, like, part of the question part of it, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, anyway, maybe I'm just trying to make something up where it doesn't exist. But
0: No, I get what you're saying. I, get, I mean, I, I can understand it it feels slightly awkward because we don't ask a question who permitting, right? Um, we would say who is permitting or something like that, but is, is not in the material. So we can't add it. So, um, I, I can understand where the feeling of awkwardness comes from, but I don't know. I think it's, if we, if we throw this one out because of that, then we've created, I think a standard that has all kinds of implications for a lot of
1: other questions. Sure. I have two things to say. Um, I think you are right that many other questions would feel this same amount of awkward, but I would bet that most of them feel that way because we're limited to only adding one word to our question, whereas that's not why this one is awkward. It's awkward well, for a different sure reason. Is.
0: Sure it is. Sure it is. What if I added the word is? Who is permitting? If I add this the, the, the one extra word, then it works just fine, right?
1: I, I don't think I would classify is as like a word added to the question. Whereas um, lots of other what questions you're asking, like, what are the qualities of or um, what kind of or things like that. Okay. And then the other thing is I, I don't think this should ever be thrown out during a quiz because it is awkward. But as a question writer, we may deem it to be awkward enough to not include in the set.
0: Oh yeah, that I totally agree with. Yeah, it, it, this is definitely not an invalid question. Therefore, it should, if if presented, it should be asked. Um, Correct. It's really just a question: Do do we want to eliminate it because of its awkwardness?
1: Correct. All right, you want to take this next one because this is uh, a labeled by you one. Oh, it is. Well, I don't even
0: remember it. Um, okay, so this comes from Hebrews chapter three, verse thirteen. And the question reads, daily what? And the answer is, encourage one another. And I marked it with the words, swap interrogative. So why on earth did I do that? Encourage one another. Oh, I know why. Um, so I want it to read, encourage how, not daily what? Um, or or flip it around and, and actually, no, 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 no. I, I totally know what I'm talking about now. Okay, so... What I said before, also true, right? Um, it could be like, encourage what, uh, one another uh, daily. But when I say swap interrogative, I remember what I'm talking about. I actually wanted to put the what in
1: front of daily.
0: So what
1: daily? Gotcha. I think um, it's an obviously valid question. I, I think it feels awkward that I probably wouldn't write what daily. Um, and I wouldn't include it in the set. I would, And I would also bet that encourage one another how um, is already in the set. Um, so it probably is. I, I would either just keep daily what as it as it is or just not write an interrogative that starts at daily.
0: Why you think what daily is is awkward or confusing? Like to me, that seems incredibly straightforward.
1: Um, yeah, I just run quickly. What quickly? I mean, it's one of those situations, I think, where we want to say something like do what quickly or you know and so you know, it's awkward because we can't add that explanatory word
0: but it goes back to what we were talking about before right like like we use the interrogative as a placeholder for expand the interrogative with words right um so if i say what daily we're i'm indicating that what i want is what is the, what it's the stuff that happened right before daily, you know? And, and so somebody just needs to provide me those words right before daily. So, so to me, I mean, I I agree with you, like daily, what is a perfectly valid question, right? Um, I just think it's better if it's what daily, because you're clarifying the, the, you're, you're basically just saying clarify the interrogative.
1: Sure. Now I'm about to make a double standard argument but be a hypocrite because I think double standards should exist in many places. Um, But I would bet that if daily is a chapter keyword that no one is ever going to write what daily as a chapter reference question, and that this is more of a um, tunnel vision for a global unique word, writing it as daily what or what daily. Oh,
0: see, no, I'd be completely the opposite. I mean, if the... Uh, I love red words because, uh, so, so, you know, in CBQZ, uh, blue words are globally unique and red words are unique to the chapter. And I love red words for writing chapter reference questions. So like for me, if, if daily was red I would absolutely do a chapter reference
1: on what daily. Interesting. Cause to me, if, if the question is the more awkward a question is, the more I require other stuff for me to write it. So like this one, I might be like, well, it is a global unique word and I want to test that word. Um, or eh, I can write a chapter reference multiple answer off this and I want to test it with that rare type. Um, but as a single answer chapter reference, I don't think I'm writing what daily ever. Okay, I can see that. I mean, I'm not super jazzed about
0: the question. Um, and like I said, the way it's written right now, I think is valid. Um, I just think it. it it's better if we're just clarifying interrogatives. Um, you know, it's it's almost like clarify he. You can say clarify your interrogative and uh, you
1: can get the answer. Sure. And last one, last question and this question. We're both just talking about um, should it be included in a question set? They're both completely valid through and through. Yeah, totally. Um, how many more we got? One more. One more. All right. Hebrews 9.27. I believe this one is some sort of a, this is one is a chapter reference right now. Um, according to Hebrews chapter nine, just as what? And the answer is people are destined to die once. And after that to face judgment. Um, and the comment is should be a multiple answer chapter reference. What are your thoughts?
0: Mm, just as what people are destined to die. And after that to face judgment. Well, Hmm. I don't know. It is not immediately obvious to me, and that may just be because I'm tired, but the because it is not immediately obvious to me, it makes me feel like it's not a good question either way. So just as what people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So here's, I'm, I'm going to say no, um, not a multiple answer question by the thinnest of margins. I think it's because of the subject people, uh, if the, if the subject word people was in the question, which of course it can't be because then it wouldn't be a chapter reference question. Uh, but let's say somehow you could move people into the question. Then I would totally say like, yeah, sure. Destined to die once. And after that, to face judgment, those are the two parts. But when you put people into the answer, you're not providing two co-equal parts that's uh, that's co-equals an awful word that doesn't describe what i'm talking about but i don't know you you can't flip around the parts i guess that's sort of i think i've talked about this a little bit before in 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 a past episode where i like i like to see multiple answers where you can take the components of a multiple answer and provide them in a different order and it still is a multiple answer now logically it may, may make absolutely no sense but you can say the things in a different order so like uh, just as what after that to face judgment and people are destined to die once, it's like well no that doesn't make sense. People would have to come first. You would say people, uh, you know, after that to face judgment, and so that again after that sort of is the the antecedent of that is the previous part of the answer. So forget about that part not making sense, but it, it, that word people being in the answer, I think, just doesn't make it a multiple answer.
1: Does that make sense? It does. Um, so there's a few things to talk about here. One is I think we're in agreement that if the first answer of a multiple answer has to occur before the second answer, that is irrelevant as long as both answers can kind of be applied to the question, right? Right, right. So like Peter ate the food and got sick. Well, he can't get sick before he eats the food. Um, but that's irrelevant because, um, Peter, what is going to be a multiple answer, right? That's simple. So then this case. This case is interesting because the multiple is kind of the verbing and the subject is included in the answer here. So if the question was just as people, um, I mean, even if you said just as people, what that's still a little bit hard to like are destined to die once, just as people are destined to die once, just as people after that to face judgment. Um, it's hard to apply it to both. Um, even though there are definitely two verbs happening to people, um, I think this one is I think you'd have to squint really hard to say that there's two answers to the interrogative on this one.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I think I would be more open to it being argued as a multiple answer if people are is included in the question. Like just as people are then destined to die once and after that to face judgment. I think I think there I could accept that as a multiple answer, right? But you're you're right. The verb to be uh, is the thing that is sort of the forking agent between the two parts of the multiple answer
1: if if that makes sense sure now there are times where you kind you could argue that um you can apply um, the the subject to both sides so like let let 's say it's the verse was um just as Jesus is Lord of all and is the son of God, you could argue that just as is the son of God makes no sense. That second answer applied to the question. But I think most people would say, well, Jesus is kind of the implied subject onto that second one. So you kind of get to take the word Jesus and say, just as Jesus is the son of God. And it's a, to- a totally fine multiple answer. What do you think of that situation?
0: What would what would you write the question to be?
1: Just as what?
0: Uh, no, I'd want Jesus to be outside of it. I'd, I'd want Jesus to be in the question. Okay, I think I think if it showed up as a multiple answer, and I was a quizmaster, I would ask it. I would cringe a little bit on the inside, but I would ask it. I think it's not necessarily invalid. I just think it's better if Jesus is the uh, you know Jesus is
1: the subject in the question. I agree. That is the way that I would prefer it to be, but I would have a hard time saying that that's like not a multiple answer. Um, I think it is a strong argument to say like, hey, the subject is in the answer of one of the answers and not in the other. Um, and yeah. So then if you saw, well, I'll pull something from first Peter, you ought to live holy and godly lives. You ought to live what you would probably say is a single answer.
0: Yes, I would. Because lives, it, it's two parts of of lives, right? So if you said, like, what lives or something like that, um, which I don't know, would be a good question at all. But if you could write that, then that would be a multiple answer. But the idea being that there are not two co-equal, but separate <laughs> um, parts of the multiple answer, that that's a horrible way of saying it, because they're not they, they don't need to be co-equal uh, or separate. But but That idea that one can't stand apart from a condition that is in the other, uh, to me, just doesn't, it doesn't render it as a multiple answer at all. It renders to me as a, as a phrase that, that has a, you know, a conjunction in it.
1: Sure. And I think, but I think that one, will, you will run across a good amount of people who will just say like, there are two answers to the interrogative, holy lives and godly lives. True. But popular, popularity
0: never, you know, means, uh, accuracy. True, but it's still a a judgment call of sorts. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. (laughs) Well, that's the last one that I have for this week. All right. Well, so let's move on to Hebrews chapter 10. So Hebrews chapter 10, uh, 39 verses, a goodly smattering of unique words, especially in the second half, and a good smattering of key verses for Pacific Northwest District anyway. Uh, Scott, what what are your kind of thoughts on uh, 10 and some strategies around it?
1: So it's a good, chunky chapter. It's got uh, 39 verses, 13 of which are key within PNW. Um, It's got some fun types. It's got a finish this and the next, a finish this, and two, finish these two verses. So seven, um, quote-unquote, special keyverse types there so keyverse specialists make sure you add those to your list and if you don't have a list you need to make one because you can really gain speed if you know if you are staring at the alphabetical list of finish this is in the next um because it's a long chapter this is going to be a tough one to jump on quotes on um and chapter verse references and chapter references just because of the length of the chapter um but like 10 24 and 25 is a fit is a finish these is a key verse pair. And 26 and 27 is also key verse pair. So if you're jumping on a quote, these two, um, you're going to have to wait a lot of a long time because you're going to have to listen to verses instead of verse and then 20. So you're going to have four syllables in there where you're usually having one to wait on. So make sure to sit on those or just fly on them if you're fine with a 50-50 probability, whatever your strategy is on that. There is a lot of unique words, especially in the latter half of the chapter, where there's also, I think, a little bit greater concentration of key verses. But in that first paragraph, looks like there's two paragraphs in the chapter. So the first 18 verses are a paragraph. There is a lot of talk about the law and sacrifices and worshipers. Um, And so sacrifices and sacrifice show up a lot. Um, There's a good amount of potential for reference questions there. Um, Verse 16, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord, I will. Like, There's just tons of stuff in there. Um, Verse 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Tons and tons of stuff in there. Verses 7 and 9 both have a quote starting with here I am that you could make into a reference question. So um, I think it's a fun chapter, and it's going to be a really good test because of the length of it for quizzers um, who are attacking all kinds of question types.
0: Yeah, I sense a lot of chapter verse reference questions coming from the first half of, chapters te- uh, of chapter 10. There's also a fair number of pretty obviously desired uh, verses that desire to be written as multiple answers. Let's put it that way. So like verse eight is one of those. There's several others that like really, they just, they yearn to be written as multiple answers. That being said, this year, our question type distribution is, is de-emphasizing multiple answers relative to previous years. I think it's better. Uh, I think before we made the change, there were just a lot of multiple answers or could be a whole lot of multiple answers in a, in a quiz. And I think it was too much. I almost feel like there's not enough. It. Um, I don't have any scientific evidence of this is just sort of a feeling that it's like as i'm quiz mastering i'm you know i get into question number 17 and a multiple answer shows up and i'm like oh hey cool multiple answer we haven't had one of these yet you know that kind of thing um so it kind of feels like the amount of study or list making that you could, you know, advantage you could get out of multiple answer focus is, you know, maybe not necessarily worth it, but nevertheless would be useful as you're memorizing uh, chapter 10 to kind of look through where some of these multiple answers could come from and just be generally prepared for it.
1: Yep. And there's two big reasons that there are fewer multiple answers within our district um, compared to last year and why it is such a shocking change. One is after, I think, I think it's been two years that the CMA rulebook has changed Um, and we have held off adopting those question type um, minimum and maximum requirements um, within PNW, and then we made the switch. So there's definitely more – there's a lot more quotes in a quiz, probably more likely to have three than one is what we had previously. Um, There's more finished questions, and there's a lot fewer multiple answer questions. So that's kind of a very big reason. But the other one is – Previously, the requirement for multiple answers was 2 to 7, and that 7 always was the weirdest upper range that was just way out of whack with all the other question types, like 8 to 12, you know, like 12 is um, 50% higher than the minimum of, of 8, right? And 1 to 2, just double, 3 to 4, uh, 2 to 3, so 50% bigger, and 3 to 5 for um, reference questions, so that's what, two, um, two-thirds bigger. But then you have multiple answers that were three and a half times the max was greater than the minimum, was just like a really large amount. And most of the time when humans, like myself, were making quizzes, we would put kind of a different limit in there. We would say like, oh, um, like what I would try to do is I would have um, the minimums all met within questions one through 20, but in all the A's and B's, I made sure that in every um twenty questions that came up of as and b's which could which would span multiple quizzes, but in every sequence of twenty we would ha- we would meet the question type requirements um within those twenty each time well, Cbqz came along and said i 'm just going to take the the requirements as written and randomly and algorithmically generate them well because of that cbqz says well there 's a lot more multiple answers I can, I can include and still be a valid quiz. And so those got overweighted compared to how humans were artificially controlling them, right? Um, yeah. And that is um, no longer the case because that upper bound has been, quote, unquote, fixed. And so those, those two things together, I mean, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if we were averaging um, four and a half multiple answers a quiz or even five for the past couple years. Um, and now we're averaging maybe one and a quarter, and that's a really big change.
0: Yeah, yeah. I that 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 kind of goes along in you know along with my feelings. Like like yeah, four or five, and then just dropping down to one or two, uh, or one and a half is uh, definitely what I'm experiencing. And so like especially when that multiple answer shows up late in the quiz, it's kind of like oh hey, I remember you. It's like an old friend coming over for Thanksgiving or something. It's like oh hey,
1: welcome. I haven't seen you in a while. And it also means that if you're a team that is trying to win. Um, meets. So maybe our top, I hesitate to say top five, but we have had five teams so far in finals, but it could be the top seven or eight or the top two, however many. Um, but if you want to be one of those teams, you need someone who is competitive on key questions because there's a minimum of six a quiz um, and probably closer to an average of seven. Um, and that's a massive number. So it's not probably not quite a third of the questions because quizzes usually average around 24 to 25 total questions, but it's almost a third of them are going to come from key verses and you need a quizzer on your team um who's not just willing to jump competitively but can get um get them right after jumping competitively and winning jumps. Yep, absolutely.
0: Well, so one of the things I wanted to talk about kind of following off of the uh Madras meet, which was a fantastic meet uh, in many respects, but one of the things that I noticed at the meet was, uh, toward Saturday and it may have just been, you know, everybody was tired. There's a, you know, for a lot of teams, not all teams, but for a lot of teams, uh, the Madras meet is a fairly long drive. So, you know, after that drive and then, you know, going to your host families for the night and then getting back in the, in the morning on Saturday, you can be pretty tired and, uh, you know, sustaining that energy level through to the end of the day can be really difficult, uh, and I noticed there were some teams that were really struggling with energy uh, conservation in terms of not saving their energy but in in instead when I say conservation, I mean Expending their energy in a way that was would allow them to have energy to basically finish out the the full length of quizzing as, as effectively as they did at the beginning and so this is, this was something I wanted to kind of raise up. We think of quizzing as predominantly an intellectual sport rather than a physical sport. But there is definitely some physicality that goes along with it in terms of jumping in terms of moving and so forth and then you know when you are engaging your brain your physical uh tiredness right your your physical fatigue is going to impact your mental capability so i wanted to kind of talk a little bit about what are some strategies going into a meet uh and and really we should be talking about some of these strategies uh, in terms of Friday and even the Thursday before the Friday of a meet, what can you do to be able to preserve that energy level or to be able to manage your energy level through especially if you 're a team that has an opportunity to get into finals on saturday that 's a lot of quizzing right uh, you know if you're if you're quizzing all the way up into finals you 've been busy and you 've been working, and it gets harder and harder. Uh, as you progress toward finals. So how do you get into finals and still maintain that kind of energy, both physically and emotionally and mentally, to be able to uh, you know, perform effectively in finals? Uh, so, Scott, what kind
1: of ideas do you have uh, for that? So this all kind of needs to be caveated with, you know, quizzers are going to have different goals and reasons for quizzing. But I think this is going to focus on the quizzers who want to perform and have excellent results in quizzing. Um, and it doesn't say anything bad about quizzers that want to just have a good time and care a little bit less about the results and thus have no need to maximize or conserve energy for the, for the end of the meet because it doesn't really matter to them. Right. But for the quizzers who are, um, focused on doing as well as they possibly can, um, conserving energy is a massive thing. And I think most often, um, this isn't This isn't really on the coaches. Like, I I bet you coaches are talking about it. And I've never coached at the district level, and I don't envy coaches that have to coach, you know, 6th and 7th graders um, who are going to get tired way faster than a high schooler um, and also coach a range of um, motivations and goals of quizzes on a team. But I always wanted to do the best possible that I could, and so I was going to spend any energy that I could – towards doing as well as i possibly could um so that meant trying to go to go to bed as early as was reasonable on friday night so if if people wanted to stay up and watch a movie or play video games for 90 minutes i would do that for 10 percent of the time and then go to bed um because it was more important for me to do well the next day than to stay up that extra hour doing whatever um i tried to drink a lot of water stay hydrated um not eat a bunch of um, junk food or fast food. Cause all that really drags you down. I was always cognizant of this is the last quiz before lunch. Do I, you know, or the last two quizzes before lunch, do I need a snack so that I'm, um, I have the, the, the energy and the brain food to stay focused. Um, and then the last thing that I did is because I was, my goal was to get a 90 average every single meet. Um, I had a handful of question types that I had studied just tons and tons for. And so those were mine that I was going for. And when those question types came up, I exerted maximum focus so that I could jump as precisely as I could and then carefully review the answer and then give it and get it correct. And what that enabled me to do is on question types that were not my types that I had not studied to that extent for, I just kind of sat back and sometimes would close my eyes and let my mind have a break. Because if I had to exert that sort of focus for 20 questions a quiz, after about half the meet, I'd probably be just done. And so I would take those breaks and keep myself fresh for the question types that I really wanted. And I think that really helped. Very cool.
0: So I was, unfortunately, I never had the opportunity to be a quizzer myself, but in high school I was... uh, Perhaps unsurprisingly, on the high school chess team, and we had several competitions that were away from school, and so energy conservation there was somewhat similar to quizzing. Uh, obviously, there's not a physical component uh, like there is in quizzing. Uh, there wasn't any, you know, jumping up or you know, lickety split speed uh, component of of focus that you had to do. So it's not exactly uh, an analogy here, or, or not exactly comparable. But, uh, some of the stuff that was incredibly important for me going into, uh, chess meets was, uh, for about two days prior, I would cut back on sugar, uh, which is bizarre, if you knew me at all in high school, because in high school, I think I, I think half my diet was Skittles, uh, maybe, maybe 60% of my diet was Skittles. And then like another 10% were M M's or something like that. Like I just, I lived on Skittles. And so I'm sure that was, well, I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm absolutely confident that that was a terrible health decision, but you know, I was in high school, so, you know, I'm invincible. I can live forever. Uh, but I would throttle back on my Skittles intake ab- about two days or so prior to going to a chess meet because I knew that uh, I I wanted to kind of feast on food that would sort of have a longer sort of uh, mental spike, you know, if, if that makes any sense. So I'd focus a lot on uh, a, a good amount of protein, not terribly low carb, but not Not heavy carb. So medium to light carb, heavy protein, a good amount of water, you know, that kind of stuff. And then trying to get myself into a fairly regular sleep cycle. And of course, you know, in high school, that doesn't really ever happen for realsies. But trying to get you know a good eight plus hours of sleep uh, every night, trying to go to bed at the same time as I would while I was away at a, at a, at a chess meet. So if 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 at a chess meet I was I knew I was going to stay up until about eleven thirty, I would try to have a similar sort of sleep schedule for a couple of days prior to going to the chess meet, so that you know I was sort of in that mode, able to perform in the same way, and but at the same time like ensuring that I got a fair amount of sleep. Uh, So trying to kind of bulk up on sleep and bulk up on stuff. And then, of course, while I'm there, that same sort of stuff that that Scott was talking about in terms of energy conservation, in terms of focus. So like, you know, after I would make a move and uh, it looked like my opponent was going to take a while to figure out uh, his or her move. Uh, I would give myself permission to not think about chess. I would actually kind of lean back a little bit and kind of stare off into space a little bit. Or I might look at at the pieces, but I would just sort of like let my mind wander for half a second. And it was kind of weird. It's almost like doing you know, physical reps of, you know, push-ups or lifting weights or something like that. And then taking a break for half a second, there is that kind of moment by giving yourself a break, you're letting your mind recoup just a little bit. Uh, and those breaks are incredibly helpful. And then, you know, as opposed to just concentrating straight for like an hour and a half on a given game. Um, so being able to do that was, was incredibly, uh, you know, beneficial. Then, um, then a lot of it was once a chess game was over. I noticed this a lot in uh not so much the folks from from my team but from other teams. When a chess game was over, a lot of guys and gals from other teams would immediately run away with their notes because like, like you know, one of the things that you do in chess at least at the time was each uh, person playing would record the moves of the game and so you'd have your your sheet of the game your your log of the game and so it was very natural for folks to just run away find a practice board and immediately set up a position and start to think through like oh what could i have done differently that kind of thing and i made a point of never well not never i made a point of almost never doing that because uh it it, It essentially kept my brain going at this sort of intensified level, and so I would say, okay, no, I'm, I'm, I know, I have confidence myself that I'm going to be reviewing these games that I just played, you know, after the meet is over. So I'm going to, you know, intentionally take a mental break. And it may have just been, it may not have been that strategically thought out. It may have just been because, you know, I was kind of a lazy, you know, high schooler. Um, But I would give myself the freedom to not think about the, the chess game that just happened. So in terms of quizzing, And this kind of leads into sort of the next thing that I wanted to talk about. Give yourself permission to not think about a quiz. Once that quiz is over, you can always go back and look at it. You can look at the score sheet. Uh, You can think about it on the ride back or something like that, but give yourself permission to say, once that quiz is over, uh, what's next is, is now an opportunity where I can rest is now an opportunity where I need to be thinking about the next quiz, Uh, kind of let the quiz of the past be in the past did that ever did you ever encounter that scott just like forgetting about a quiz or intentionally giving yourself the permission to say i am I'm, I'm done with that quiz i'm you're not going to forget about it but
1: you're not going to think about it now yeah um it's hard for me to remember i like i would like to believe that i was able to easily move on because i understood that i couldn't affect the past but um i definitely was that sort of person who would dwell very long on mistakes. Um I don't think I would artificially beat myself up over it. Um so I think I I I was able to compartmentalize and just look towards the future. Yeah, and
0: I think that's incredibly <clears throat> healthy. So the second thing that I wanted to talk about, you know we were talking about energy conservation, the other one I wanted to talk about was attitude stabilization or or in a way you could also call this a a type of conservation, a a conservation of attitude. The idea of saying Uh, It's almost like the Chuck Norris principle. Uh, I never actually saw Chuck Norris, uh, you know, compete in uh, uh, martial arts, but I've heard many uh, independent reports where who would say, like, you know, when he would go to compete, uh, win or lose, he acted exactly the same way. You know, um, somewhat stoic, very polite, very respectful, but somewhat stoic. And the idea being that, you know, if he won, he'd be, he'd be happy, but he wouldn't be super excited He'd be like, okay, cool. Uh, he'd, he'd thank people and and exit. And if he lost, he would be almost exactly the same way, you know, pleasant, thank people and, and exit. It was just sort of like this, this attitude normalization, not normalization. I'm trying to find the right word, but, um, regression toward the mean, I guess, but that's not really what I'm talking about either. But it's just sort of an attitude stabilization thing going on, right? I see a lot of folks who will go into a quiz and they will, you know, do well and they'll get excited, which is totally natural. And that's great. And they might do well and they might win a quiz or something like that. They might quiz out and there's a lot of cheering and that's fantastic. And that's a good thing about quizzing. But then the, the, the sort of the, the flip side of that happens where somebody will air out and they'll just be really down on the on themselves or their team may not be doing particularly well and they're not able to get a a, you know a jump and they're just not kind of in the groove for whatever reason maybe it's an energy conservation issue and then it'll get compounded with this sort of um sort of a, a a just a negative feeling like like gosh i really should be doing better and and folks and it's not like it's not a negative thing in terms of um you know somebody feeling negative about somebody else there it's usually people who are feeling negative about how they're 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 doing themselves right and they're like i need to be doing better or for whatever reason, uh, you know, I'm not doing as well as I thought I could be kind of stuff. And they, they start to feel down about it. I I would encourage folks to believe that, that those kind of feelings, you know, certainly they're natural. They, they happen. Right. But try to, try to compartmentalize them, try to, try to let them go. Right. Because ultimately, if you're starting to feel down about your performance, you will actually perform less well. Uh, If you can maintain kind of this this stabilized attitude, a stabilized reaction to how things are happening, you'll be able to, I think, on a net wise, increase your performance. I don't know. Scott, what do you think about that theory?
1: Um, Absolutely. I mean, there are many cases because I was always trying to get a 90 where it would be question 11 and I'd have one right or zero right. And that was less than I wanted to have and that I usually had by that time. And so I would start to panic. I would want to jump on question types that were not my strongest um, when really the best thing would be for for me to be put into a trance where for like two questions, um, I couldn't do anything or hear anything. And then I was just brought back that like three minutes later. Um, And I bet you I would have done wildly better if that had been forced upon me rather than being in control of what I'm doing and do something um, not optimal.
0: What kind, do you have any ideas of, like, if somebody is struggling
1: with this, are, do you have any ideas of what they could try? <sighs> I think this is really, really, really hard. Um, I think when you look at sports athletes who say cliche things like take this one play, one pitch, um, one shot um, at a time, it sounds so cliche. But I really think that the players that are able to compartmentalize their efforts and focus into only the current Um, event happening. And then once that event has passed, it's gone. And then they're fully into the next event. Um, The ones that can do that, I think, perform the closest to their ability um, while everyone else performs far below their ability. And I don't have tricks for doing that because like, I prepared so hard and yet I would lose confidence when I didn't have just quite as many as I thought I should have by this point in the quiz, which shouldn't be a situation at all. Um, but I just would. Um, so it's, no, I don't really know. Like, I mean, you really need some brutal acceptance that you can't change the past so that there's, there's no utility to even thinking about it. Um, but I think it's very, very difficult. And there's a reason that those who can do it do perform better and it's decently rare.
0: Yeah. I, I can't think of any sort of advice in terms of how to improve in this area, and which is frustrating. I wish I knew, I wish I could provide something. I, I'm i looking at examples in, in my, you know, personal history where I think attitude stabilization has made a huge positive impact when I've been able to do it. But then I'm looking at it saying, well, how did I do it? And I have absolutely no idea. Like, like how could I replicate that sort of behavior? So like, you know, I, I know Listeners know that I'm a, a pilot, a private pilot. I'm, I'm not commercial. I don't work for an airline or anything, just for fun, uh, and for you know related uh, things for fun. So I got to you know fly down to Kelso and fly back that kind of thing. So I'm, I get to fly for quizzing, unrelated to quizzing or that sort of stuff. But it's just you know a hobby and a and a and a joy to be able to fly and there's this thing in aviation where like if you are let's say you're in IMC so instrument uh conditions that basically it just means Uh, You can't see, you're you're in clouds, uh, in a storm or something like that. It's dark. Uh, You can only fly by your instruments, that sort of stuff. And you make a mistake somewhere along the lines and you get off course a little bit or you're below altitude or something like you you misinterpret a, a, a command from ATC or an instruction from ATC or something like that. Those sort of things can fluster you. And then you make corrective action and then you continue on with the flight wherever you happen to be in whatever you happen to do, right? So if if you happen to be low or if you happen to be off course or something and ATC says, oh, hey, uh, you're off course, uh, you're like, oh, okay, fix it, you know, and then just completely let it go. The the pilots who can't let it go are the ones who make more mistakes later, right? Um, And I don't know how to be one kind of pilot versus another. I'm, I'm remembering one particular flight. This was, I don't know, a few months ago, I don't know, September or something like that, or October, I forget exactly when it was. And I was flying from uh, Bremerton uh, area, sort of west of Seattle, uh, over the Cascades through a storm, a rainstorm uh, that was over the Cascades and then into uh, Eastern Washington. And I was going to end up in in uh, the Palouse area, uh, north of Pullman. And, uh, so I'm, I'm past Seattle just a little bit. I'm, I'm not quite over the Cascades, but I'm getting there. I'm completely in the soup and I'm dealing with, you know, a lot of things are going on in the cockpit, but of course I can't see out the windows. There's just nothing but, you know, dark gray clouds and rain and so forth. And I hear this, you know, this voice from ATC, you know, Lake 8003 hotel, uh, are you planning on flying, you know, Victor two, which was his, or confirm that your cor- course is Victor two or something like that, which is basically ATC's very polite way of saying, uh, dude, you're kind of off course a little bit. And I, I quickly looked down and noticed, you know, my, my directional needle and I was like, Oh, he's right. I'm off course. And so I was like, you know, yep. Yeah, uh, confirm Victor two. And I quickly, you know, got back on. And then I completely forgot that that ever happened. I just sort of like put it completely out of my mind. How that happens, I have absolutely no idea. But in quizzing, I would encourage folk, folks to try to get there. Try to get to a point where, like, if you if you pre jump on a question and you foul, if you error on a question and you're you're very close and you're you're like you knew you know you can get the question correct if you had the opportunity to do it over again that's fine. Just let it go, right? Move on to the next question. And I, but other than being able to say, like, try to do that, I have no idea how to get there.
1: Yep. One thing I always wanted to have a really, really good handle on was the difference between process and results. Um, so if I was, if I had a process such as jump on interrogatives on 2.7 syllables and watch for W's, um, and I was confident that based on my knowledge of the material, I would get a high percentage right if I did that. Well, if I did that and successfully didn't jump on Ws and got at least 2.7 syllables and then didn't know it, well, I would know, well, I did everything that I wanted to do correctly. I just need to study harder next time or jump a little bit slower. Um, And then if a different quizzer jumped at, say, 2.3 syllables and a W and then happened to get it right, it didn't bother me at all because I knew like that isn't something that I'm willing to do. And so the result of um, like their result mattered not to me, whether they got it right or wrong. Um, I was just focused on executing my planned process as best as I could. And I think that would help a lot because there would be times where I'd make errors and I'd be like, you know what? Um, I just didn't study hard enough. I didn't know that. And that didn't bother me a ton because I knew why it, it was happening. Likewise, when other quizzers, maybe on my special, special specialties, um, would beat me and then get it right, I could say, I think they'd, They jumped faster than I was willing to jump, and they got a little bit lucky, and then that also wouldn't bother me. Um, That's definitely not all of the way towards um, being able to approach each question by itself and forget the past, Um, but I, I try to be very focused on is this something I can control or is this something that I can't control? Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, with that, we should uh, wrap things up. And as usual, I'll remind folks that uh, we would very much like to hear from you if you have any sort of, especially if you have any disagreements with anything that we've said, Uh, but uh, whether you agree or disagree, or you have a different point of view, we really would love to hear from you. Please email us at IQ at org, And you can also follow us on Twitter, our Twitter, 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 I can't talk anymore. Our Twitter account is at Inside Quizzing. And uh, with that, I will bid you all adieu. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Scott.
1: Thank you, everyone.